How many of you are glad to be here tonight? Amen. Amen. I want to read something. Um, one little verse expeditiously um, about um, our Lord it says in Luke 23, Luke 23, 33, it says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. Um, today, um, it's tomorrow in Israel now, but at some point yesterday for us, but today for them, it was the commemoration of his six hour hanging on the cross where our Lord from 9 a.m. to about 3 p.m. Uh, hung on a cross bleeding to death for your sins and mine. And they yelled at him, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And it's interesting that he's on a cross hearing people taunt him about saving himself, not knowing that he was hanging on the cross to save them. And so tonight we celebrate this yearly not as some type of ritual, but as a time to uh, really dig into, even though we're, we believe we're Christ-centered church, everything, there's, there's something about moments where we take time and meditate on what the goodness of the Lord has been for us and what he has done for us. How many of you are glad he died? How many of you are glad he died? Well, if you're glad he died, won't you stand to your feet? His death commemorated the forgiveness of our sins. And so this night, we're going to celebrate. I'm not going to preach. I'm going to sit with you and be ministered to by different ones of our sons and grandsons in the ministry who are doing great ministry in this region and will be doing great ministry in this region. So when they come, it's okay every now and then to give them an amen or two. All right? And so they brought some help with them, but I'm hoping that you'll help them as they communicate and turn our hearts towards heaven and towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Padre, perdónalos porque no saben lo que hacen. It was in his book, Strength to Love, that Dr. Martin Luther King talks about the importance of forgiveness. He talks about how there wasn't a day that went by in his life that he and his family did not sit and exist in danger. He talked about how every day he had numerous death threats that would come in to people who would threaten to kill him and his family. He would talk about how people would call his wife and disrespect her to say how they're going to kill him. He said there was never a time and a day that he was not in danger. When asked in his book, what is it that gives you the strength to love? 
he quotes the words of our master, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While these words may have been uttered by the civil rights leader and may have been enough energy to give him strength in turbulent times, I submit to you this day that these words uttered more than 2,000 years ago have eternal significance for us tonight. Here it is, our Savior Jesus, as he marches untriumphantly into the city of his birth, Jerusalem, the place where he would come to be king. He marches in and receives no welcome but callous hearts. Few days from there, all of a sudden, a plot is put in motion to get him killed. Come later, he's accused as a criminal, taken away. He's beaten, and as guards slap him in the face and mock him and talk about him and stump him and punch him hard and cause him to bleed, and people are calling him a criminal, saying, crucify him. Jesus would take the cross upon his back and march it up Golgotha, and he would be nailed to a cross, stretched wide, nails in his wrists, nails in his feet, hanging between two criminals. And at the foot of that there cross, there would be people who would smile at his death. There would be those who sat back and planned and plotted for some time and could not wait to see the day where Jesus would be no more. There would be those who would mourn and those who would weep, and then there would be the passerby who could care less. Jesus, as he hangs there on the cross, looks out at the faces that stare back at him and instead of thinking wrathful thoughts toward them, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As the great mediator that he is, he stands in between humanity and God, and he says, God, they think they're doing something to me. Their plans are to destroy me and to wipe me out. They're rebellious against me. They've always been rebellious against you. But Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. They're killing the savior of the world, but yet they know not what they do. If you were to take a second and look at that crowd, staring at Jesus, you'd find your faces sitting there too. That if you were to think back how you were before you met Jesus Christ, you'd understand. In fact, if you look at yourself now, you'd understand that it is us that put him there on that cross. You know what you were like prior to Christ touching your heart. You knew couldn't nobody tell you nothing. Had no thoughts about church, had no thoughts about Jesus, had no thoughts about God. But yet Jesus, 2,000 years ago, utters the words, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I may be talking to some sanctimonious people in here who say, I, I, that ain't my testimony. I lived a good life, raised in church, know the Bible well, and I think I've done some good things. But the scripture says that on our best days, our righteousness is worth filthy rags. Jesus utters these words about those who are looking at him because 2,000 years ago, there'll be those looking back, understanding the forgiveness that he offers. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I, I don't know if you've ever had debt mount up against you where you may have racked up a credit card or maybe student loan debt, debt that you thought you'd never have to pay back, debt that once you started paying, you realized how tall that mountain was and you'd never get to its peak. Our sin is like that. 
that our sin has, has piled up and mounted up higher than any tower we can ever go to the top of. That, that if we were to try to pay back our sin, we would do it until eternity. But God says from the cross, it is forgiveness that this blood will pour out for. That in the shedding of Christ's blood, there will be forgiveness. And God says there, forgiveness is given to you. That, that's the last word. This, this eternity, this forgiveness is eternal. Meaning it stretches long. I don't know what you're carrying on you today. Somebody is burdened with guilt. But understand that Jesus Christ's forgiveness, the prayer that he prayed, God answered it. And your forgiveness has been given because of faith in him. But not only does your forg his forgiveness go long, his forgiveness goes far. His forgiveness is able to reach far down into your soul where sin has you blocked. And that sin is able to be removed because of Christ's blood that is allowed for the forgiveness. That forgiveness of sin is not just a sin, a forgiveness that acts like the sin has not been there, but rather it is the removal of that barrier to draw you close to God. You might be guilt written today. You might be burdened down with your sin today. Understand that the prayer Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago is the final word for you. That God has given you the final word of forgiveness. 2,000 years ago on that cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the forgiveness has been granted. Two criminals are crucified on either, either side of the Christ. Two men had front row seats to the spectacle surrounding the death of Jesus. And between their two crosses, a crowd had come together that consisted of soldiers and spectators, mourners, mothers, but we soon find out that these two partners in crime are on opposing sides when it comes to the God-man that hung between them. Now, let me first remind you that the crucifixion conversations weren't like what we learned in Sunday school, because first of all, the crosses had several feet between them. Second of all, the uproar of the crowd surrounding them was likened to a stampede. And on top of that, if you wanted to speak, you had to raise your body in the air, further tearing your flesh. So from these three things, I think we can conclude that if you wanted to speak, it had to be done through painful screams. The first criminal who speaks openly curses and rejects Jesus. But the second criminal recognizes Jesus for who he is. He acknowledges that this dying man beside him is the king he claims to be. Somehow he understood. Maybe he was picking pockets at the festival when he overheard Jesus say that a kernel of wheat must first fall to the ground and die. Or maybe he was privy to some inside information and heard the intricate plot that the Son of Man must first be given over to the hands of men be killed and three days later would rise. But as a criminal is facing his death, he does so much more than just declare that Jesus is Lord. He shares with us one of his deepest fears, a fear we all share, the fear of being forgotten. So he turns to the one who could remember placing the stars in the sky. He, 
he, he looks to the one who could remember talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he speaks to the one who could still remember what he looked like when he was being formed in the womb. This criminal lifts his brutalized body and pleads his final words. Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And how does Jesus respond to this, this criminal? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise? Just imagine the peace that washed over this man as he heard Jesus' words. After a life of sin and struggle, he is enduring the most barbaric torture device ever crafted by man. He feels life leaving his body. And in that moment, Jesus, the Messiah, assures him that they would be together in paradise that very day. Just a few more stabbing breaths. Just a few more shredded ligaments and just a few more mouthfuls of blood and I will be with Jesus in paradise. There are no greater words that could ever be spoken in any language. Trust me, if Jesus tells me that sentence, I'm good, I promise. Now, I assume this criminal lacked formal theological education, so he probably didn't understand everything that was going on in this conversation. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was dying for the very man who was dying beside him. And unbeknownst to the criminal, the penalty for his sin was being paid for, not 10 feet away. The distance between the crosses may have been too far for comfortable conversation, but the gap was incredibly close when we consider redemption. Because to the onlookers, it seemed that Jesus' mission was a failure. But while Jesus was dying, he was as confident as ever in his kingship. He didn't doubt. In fact, in this phrase, we see Jesus flexing his divinity on the cross because when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, we see the dying Christ weakly lift his human voice and proclaim his divine power, his human body, through dying gasps, divinely declares, paradise is mine. It's mine to give, and it's mine to share with whoever I please, even if that person seems like the most undeserved individual. Jesus had rock-solid confidence in his identity and in the salvation he gives. If you've trusted Christ, you're going to have dark days where you doubt your identity and you doubt your salvation. But I want you to leave here today confident in your salvation because Jesus is confident in your salvation and Jesus has the last word.
亲，看你的儿子，儿子，看你的母亲。several weeks I've been battling sickness and in my house I can't do the things that I would like to do I can't serve my wife the way I would love to serve her because I'm a little lethargic and I'm tired I can't play with my children and go outside and play with them because I just don't have the strength to do it right now and so it's enough for me just to be downstairs and to sit with them as I struggle through my little bit of cold and flu symptoms. But it's amazing to me as we look at this particular passage that Jesus is the exact opposite of me. When Jesus has every right in the world to be inwardly focused, when every nerve in his body is throbbing and telling him something is wrong, when his mind is telling him, just simply breathe. There is something that is wrong with us right now and something is not right. And so he should have every emotional reason to close his eyes and to be cut off from anybody out here in the crowd because instinctually he needs to survive. But through the blood through the sweat, through the tears, he looks out through the crowd and calls out to his mother. Saying, woman, behold your son. In spite of his pain and the desire for him to figure something out, figure some way to comfort himself, he goes beyond his own pain to comforting those out there. So I'm, 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 I'm looking here and it says that, that Jesus calls out to his mother. His mother, why would he call out to her? As the oldest son, he has a responsibility. He has a duty to take care of those under his care. His mother being one of them, she has no husband. She would be left homeless. She would be left to the streets. No one there to take care of her. She needed her son there in this moment. But she stands there in the crowd, pressed amongst those other people, probably head down because she's so, so, so sad and grieving at her son as he lays there on the cross. And while he's fulfilling the great will of his father, he still seems to find a way to honor his mother. He calls her woman. Now to us, we would never say this if we, if we got any smarts about us. Even in the worst kind of pain, you would never say that to your mama. But, but in this term, it's not the same as what we know it as. It's a term of respect or endearment to his mother. He calls out to her, woman, behold your son. Now he says woman simply because he is trying to say something that is respectful to her, yet pulling back the pain of saying, Mama. 
So even then, he knows the amount of grief that she is going through. So he uses a term that would give her a sense of grace and respectability in the moment. So he says, woman, why would he say, behold, your son? Because he knows that there is a, there is a, a blade that is piercing in her soul, but he doesn't want it to turn much more than it has to. And so while he is there, he calls out and he says at the same moment, he nods his head in the direction of his beloved disciple. He nods his head in a, towards his beloved disciple and commends her to him. I need you to see that while she is weeping at the foot of the cross, Christ is preparing a place for her. I need you to see that while she is there crying and weeping, not knowing what tomorrow may have, she is supposed to be homeless tomorrow. She is supposed to go to the Social Security office and find some place for her to stay. Now she should be looking for a shelter to go someplace because she ain't got nowhere else to go because her oldest son has been laid to rest. But he, in a moment while on the cross, finds her a home and life insurance. See, 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 for us, see, for us, we got to go to the NFL or the NBA to do that same kind of stuff. But Jesus in his most lowly estate finds a way to find a house and life insurance. So what I need you to know is I know some of us come in here with bills. We tired. We upset. We don't think God knows the physical nature of the things that we are going through. We trust Jesus with the spiritual care. We trust Jesus with our salvation, but we don't think he can handle a mortgage. But I need you to understand that the God I serve handles the mortgage and the house payment and the water bill and the electric bill and your health insurance when Obamacare don't work no more. Lastly, I need you to see that he left her in good hands. He left her in good hands. He didn't just leave her to any old body. He looked at his most beloved disciple and said, my brother, take care of my mama. And from that moment, she had a home and had a new and established family. So when we look at the cross of Christ, we don't only see the spiritual nature of God's love, we see the physical comprehensive love and care that God has for his people. I need you to know today that if you are grieving, that if you are hurting, that if you are stressed out and anxious because of what this world is throwing at you, God has the final word on your comfort. Bon Dieu, bon Dieu, pour qui ça a abandonné? One day, five years ago, uh, a five-year-old boy cowered in the corner of a dark, damp basement. He was severely bruised from having been badly beaten by his mother's boyfriend. 
The little boy sat petrified in the corner as he heard the argument intensify above his head between his mother and her boyfriend. He waited frozen to the corner as he heard the familiar frightening sound of the creaking of the basement steps. As the sound grew heavier and closer and more dense, the little boy began to cry out to his absent father, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? Unfortunately, his cries for help did not stop the onslaught of violence that would ensue upon his tiny little fragile body. Suddenly, with one final blow to his chest, the little boy would fade into a prominent darkness as he fell unconscious. That's a sad story of the abandonment of a little boy uh, with an unfinished ending. It's vaguely similar to the story uh, in our passage today. We see Jesus hanging on the cross in complete and total darkness. He hung on the cross in complete and total darkness for three long hours. He was hanging on the cross as a, convicted as a guilty man, but he was the innocent lamb of God. Matthew and Mark both tell us that there was darkness all over the land. Uh, and that darkness uh, would prepare Jesus uh, for the three days of darkness that he would experience in the grave. You see, those three hours of darkness on the cross were just a precursor for Jesus for the three hours of, for the three, three days of darkness that he would experience in the grave. And see, darkness surrounded his senses, darkness surrounded everything around Jesus to the point where he could only sense his abandonment. And in his sensing of his abandonment, he would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry would echo back through the ages for all of Israel to King David when he would say that same thing in Psalms chapter 22. It was a gut-wrenching cry. But more importantly, it was a devastating reality. God the Son, who had been in perfect unity with God the Father, was now experiencing abandonment. However, his abandonment would be for our obtainment. You see, he was abandoned so that we could be obtained by God. See, those three hours of darkness on the cross when light abandoned the world would prepare Jesus for those three days of darkness in the grave uh, when his light would leave his body. You see, so after those three days of darkness uh, in, in the grave, we would never experience abandonment from God. So we give praise to God because uh, the light of life would leave Jesus' body, uh, the light of the world, so that we could be filled with the light of the newness of life uh, that would never go out and we would never be abandoned again. You see, Christ was abandoned so that we wouldn't have to be. And, and at the end of those three hours of darkness on the cross, it seemed like the story was over. 
it seemed like the story was coming to an end. And you see, but when God has the last word, when God has the last word, the story is not over. When God has the last word, the story is hardly finished. You see, uh, as Jesus was hanging on the cross in darkness for three hours, the story looked bleak. The story looked like it was not going to end well. But at the end of those three days of darkness in the grave, he rose up with all power and his hands and see remember the story of that battered little boy that I told you about I told you that it had an unfinished ending that little boy who was beaten badly by his mother's boyfriend his story uh, didn't end with violence and darkness his story wasn't over uh, and you see that little boy that I told you about in the beginning that was me that little boy was me. But because of the grace of God, I'm standing here today to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to you to let you know that your story is not over when darkness has flooded your life, when darkness has filled your heart, your story is not over. And maybe for you, abandonment has been the story of your life. Maybe loneliness has been the defining factor of your life. Maybe you felt like God has been absent from you in times when you've needed him the most. Maybe it seems like you, you've been abused and mistreated and battered and forsaken all of your life. But I'm here to tell you today that when God has the last word, you're never alone. When God has the last word, you're never forsaken. When God has the last word you're never abandoned you see because Christ's work on the cross made absolutely sure of that uh, how do you know preacher and uh, in the book of Romans in the eighth chapter around the 30th 38 verse uh, uh, the writer to to the people uh, of Rome he wrote and he asked the question he said who shall separate us from the love of Christ you see, he asked that question because he wanted to reassure some folk that the love of Christ would never be taken away from you. And you see here, he says, I love that he answers his own question at the end of it. He says in the 38th verse, for I am persuaded. <laughs> he says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life <laughs> No angels, no rulers, uh, no things present, no things to come, uh, no depth, no height, uh, nor anything else in creation shall be able to separate you from the love of God. You see, darkness was the defining factor uh, for Jesus on the cross, but it wasn't the end of his story. It wasn't the end of his story because... When God has the last word, victory is ours.
Amen. Knowing that all was completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Here's the question. Is this dehydration or disconnection? Was he feeling exhaustion of the mission, or was he feeling the execution of the Father? But let's key that we understand here now that Jesus is a sympathetic Savior. He knows that all things are completed, right? He is dying in pain with with a human reality. See, we talk theologically about the hypostatic union, but we're all hypo and no static. We say Jesus died, but we ignore the suffering, pain, and the reality of pain. He wasn't in pain as God, but as a full human just like you on perks and everything else you use on pain. But without that, he's still sympathetic as a savior. He suffered, he's been beaten, and he's died as a human. Don't look past the humanity. Jesus stepped into the world, fully embracing his humanity. He is the last Adam. He recognized that this is it. You see, what started at a tree in the garden is ending at a tree in Golgotha's Hill. He is the last Adam. Second, Jesus is the servant of the scriptures that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus walks in the word, fulfilling scripture perfectly and painfully. That the scripture might be fulfilled. See, this is not some cosmic manipulative histrionics, D.A. Carson says in his commentary. No, this is the sovereign God orchestrating substitutionary atonement like he promised in the garden to Adam. This is not the devil driving Jesus into a corner screaming he's thirsty looking from some Gatorade. No, this is the divine orchestration of the sovereign Lord. This is the work of the sovereign Lord, just like Micah 5, the place of his birth, the work of the sovereign Lord, the time of his birth, Daniel 9.25 and Genesis 49.10, the work of the sovereign Lord, the manner of his birth, Isaiah 7.14, this is the work of the sovereign Lord, the manner of his death, Psalm 22.16, this is the work of the sovereign Lord. See, Jesus wasn't putting a checklist to say that scripture, oh, before I die real quick, let me um, say Psalm 69. Nah, he was being obedient to the Father like he had been all the way through. And his obedience is the fulfilling of Scripture. In so doing, obedient service to the Father, he fulfilled Scripture. What Scripture was fulfilled here? Well, the Psalm, this Psalm 69 is a lamentation from David, and it seems that that's the one being fulfilled. He says, and I'll read from the Message Bible, it says, I'm broken by their taunts. Flat on my face, reduced to nothing. I looked in vain for one friendly face, not one. I couldn't find one shoulder to cry on. They gave me poison for food, and for thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. See, there there will be no help coming on this side of earth for him. He was looking for comfort, and he found none from no, not one. 
He's recognizing the completion of his mission. He is fully committed to suffering and the reality of the cross in fulfilling God's plan of redemption. Earlier said, this is what he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If I can avoid drinking this, avoid this cup. Nah, not my will, but your will. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' cry of I thirst is him submitting himself to the final humiliation and dignity as human. This cup will not pass. This cup would not pass. If this cup passes, we are doomed. But it did not pass. Jesus has fully absorbed. This is what I want you to hear the messianic implication. He is fully absorbed in his kingly messianic identity. He is fully absorbed as being a man and taking on this death, not like a tough macho dude, but a divine submissive servant that's willing to suffer and consider that strength. See, this is not a coincidence, but God's commitment to his word, to his people, and to his son. This is Christ's active obedience to the Father's will. So, last I'll say is Jesus is a... He's a sufficient savior. He's sufficient. Payment for the sins of mankind is coming to fulfillment at this moment. What started at a tree in the garden is all culminated in the vicious, violent pain of the sins of all mankind being lethally injected into an innocent man. The price for our sins through this was spiritual suffering and physical agony. People who are in hell today, you know what they say? I thirst. Hell is a place for eternal thirst. Those who are condemned to suffer there are for eternity will forever thirst, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. There is no thirst in heaven, though. Revelation 7:16 declares with all authority, there shall no hunger no more, neither shall thirst anymore. This is the last invitation in the Bible. And 22.17 says he invites all who, come, who thirst to come and take the water of life freely. Keep your money. Jesus says, I'll pay the bill. The wine offer was considered. In closing, when I think of I thirst, there's two kinds of wine. There was the, the myrrh wine that was a sedative so he could avoid the pain. He chose not that wine. And the other wine that they offered, it was a common wine. Um, I'm from the hood, so that would be like Thunderbird <laughs> or Cold Duck. <laughs> I just gave somebody a relapse. <laughs> but Jesus submits to drinking the bad wine in this life. That we wouldn't, that you and I would drink the good wine in eternity with Jesus. I thirst is a victory chant. It's not a declaration of hydration, but it's a chant declaring that he thirsts beyond the thirst that you could imagine. And his thirst is that you and I would never thirst. When Jesus has, when God has the final word, your thirst is ever satisfied in Christ. It is finished.
everybody else get all these different languages and I got English. I could speak another language if I have to. John chapter 19, John chapter 19, verse number 30. I'm on a time limit here. John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want to lift up three words smack dead in the middle of that verse. It is finished. Many of us in this room have great difficulty with finishing tasks. We normally start off uh, great. We normally start off with great goals, great intentions, and somewhere along the line, we lose either interest or the ability to complete an assignment. This unhealthy inconsistency to complete tasks normally shows up in different aspects of our life. Maybe it's a book that you're reading and it, you just lost the ability to finish that book. Maybe, maybe it's something different. Maybe it's something like an unfinished project that's sitting on your kitchen table. Or maybe it's a diet. Maybe, maybe it's a diet that you just lost the discipline. You started out on the treadmill. Now you're at Ishkabibbles. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. All of us in this room... All of us in this room, somewhere along the line, have fell off with something. And th this lack of follow-through doesn't just show up in minor areas like cheese sticks, but it does show up in major and even painful areas, such as maybe a, a father that abandoned his parental duties. I know I am 90% single-parent homes in Philadelphia. 90%. Maybe it's something like a marriage that ended because things got a little rough and a little rocky. Can we all agree in here that finishing is hard to do? Can, can I submit to you tonight and suggest that this lack of follow-through is not uncommon? In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, when we fell, when Adam and Eve fell, God knew that there was one area that we would not be able to fulfill and complete, and that is called the requirement for salvation. But in his infinite wisdom, before we even fell, he set a plan into motion that he would execute from start to finish. New, knowing that we wouldn't be able to do it, he said, I'm going to step on down and do it myself. Now, the word that, that Jesus has given us tonight, at least the one that I'm preaching, is different than what we've heard so far. This is not a cry of feeling forsaken. This is not even a cry of desperation, as Pastor Doug just talked about, I thirst. No, 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 no. This is a triumphant declaration, a proclamation that all that I have came to do has been done. The full requirement for your sin and your, the penalty for your sin has been accomplished and been met. In Brooklyn, in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, every Thursday night they have something called battle ciphers. Now, you may know what a battle cipher is. That's when two guys stand face to face and they see who can spit the best bars. And when, when I watch these videos of these battle ciphers, I always know who won the, the, the cipher, not by the guy that's spitting the best bars, but by the guy who has the strongest finish. And what does he normally do? He drops the mic. That's how you know he won when you drop the mic. Jesus is the first person to divinely complete his mission and drop the mic. Only Jesus could do that. It is 
finished. Now, our English language has broken this up into three words, but in the original language, this was not broken up into three words. It was one word, tetelestai. This is an accounting term. You would literally write this on a receipt, and, and the indication of the receipt when you wrote it on there was that it's been paid in full, not partially paid, not almost paid, not 90% paid, not let me just pay enough to keep the cell phone bill on, but fully paid. Jesus has fully paid it. And what, what I found out this weekend, and I didn't know this, you guys may have known this, you guys look spiritual tonight, so you may know this. But what I found out when, when I was doing further research is that not only accountants would have used this term, but writers would have used this term as well. After they finish a manuscript, they'd read over it one final time and seeing that there was nothing else that needed to be added, nothing else that needed to be taken away, nothing else that needed to be said, they'd slap a period on it and say, to Telestai. Sculptors and painters would do the same thing. After finishing a masterpiece, they'd step back and they'd look at it and they'd say, to tell us die. Even our God, after creating heaven and earth in Genesis 1, by the time we get to verse 31, he steps back and looks at creation and says, it is good. All of our lives should be lived under this. It is finished. All of the sermons that we preach should have a hint of it is finished. No gospel-centered preacher preaches do more, work harder. We preach that you are submitting your life under the finished work of Jesus Christ. All of our lives is under that. Now, what I just need to do before I take my seat, because if I don't answer the question, this next question, it will literally keep me up all night. The question on the table is what is finished? The full requirement for your payment of your sins. You no longer, we heard tonight that Jesus says, why do you forsake me? The Christian life that has submitted his life to Jesus will never hear. Why have you forsaken me? We will, all, we will always be under the mighty hand of God. Now, at the, at the expense of making you feel a little uncomfortable tonight, since you guys have been pretty quiet tonight, can we all scream when I count to three, it is finished. One, two, three. It yes, it is. God bless you. Nakagi, canting it mom. Amen. Before we get to this most beautiful of sayings, I want to just start off by looking at the setting of this passage. See, in verse 44, it says that darkness had went over the whole land. Creation did what I would call an anti-motel six ministry. The, the, you, you know the slogan, it says that we will keep the lights on for you. Creation says we're shutting the lights down because you've shut out the spiritual light of this world. See, creation is not confused like men are about who's its creator. And so it realizes that at this moment, it has to shut the lights out because they're shutting out the light of the world. But then the second thing that happens, the, the, the veil in the temple is torn at this moment. 
And, and don't miss the fact that it's torn right at the same time that Jesus' body is being torn. It's ripped right at the same time that Jesus' body is being ripped because God wants to make the connection between what's happening in the temple and what's happening at Calvary. How amazing is it that the place of societal condemnation now becomes the place of societal consecration all because of who's on the hill, Jesus Christ. How amazing is it that the access point into the permanent presence of God has now transferred from the holy temple to a hellacious hill all because of who's on the hill, Jesus Christ. How amazing is it that the place of societal shame now becomes the only place from which men can actually be sanctified all because of who's on the hill, Jesus Christ. And so now he is able to call out to his father. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This word to commit means to fully entrust oneself. He doesn't put his toe in at the beach. He jumps in head first into the father's hands. How beautiful is that? And what this shows is consistency in the midst of adversity, courage, listen, courage in the midst of uncertainty. This is something that Jesus has never experienced before. He's never experienced death before. And yet he says, fully, I entrust all of myself into my father's hands. And so for two reasons, we see consistency. First, because of the who. Second, because of the what. Let's look at the who, his father. The same father that he called out to when he was a young boy is the same father that he's calling out to when he's being beaten. The same father that he called out to when he was a teen is the same father that he's calling out to when he's in tears. This, this is the same father, if you will, that he called out to on Palm Sunday when they exalted him is the same father that he's calling out to on Good Friday when they're executing him. He doesn't switch the game up. There's no bandwagon in his soul. Next, the what? Scripture. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm chapter 31, verse 5. And he sees in himself what's going on with David. David has just been betrayed by the Ziphites. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judah. And here it is that he comes and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. How amazing is it that he's quoting scripture? See, in Jesus' mind, scripture is still supreme, though he's suffering. Scripture is still supreme, though he's suffocating. Scripture is still supreme, though he's saturated in his own blood. Scripture is supreme, consistent. There's something in basketball we like to call a timeout. And the way the timeout works is when the score is getting out of control, When one team seems to be dominating another team, the coach of that team that's getting dominated will call a time out to what sports commentators say to stop the bleeding. Jesus' father didn't call time out to stop the bleeding. Jesus' father, when he was bleeding from his head, didn't call time out to stop the bleeding. He never called time out. He never got a break. And yet in this moment, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. See, see, some of us need a little bit more Phil Jackson in our soul. See, Phil Jackson would sit back if they were down 15 and 20, and he would sit back because he was committed to the game plan that he established, even if there was adversity on the court. 
This is what Jesus does. He, he commits to his father's game plan even in the midst of adversity. When the clock strikes triple zero, he is still at his feet saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now at this point in the text, as he breathes his last, I'm sure death, Satan, and sin are throwing a premature party. You can see the confetti falling from the rafters of the court because they think that they've won the game. But all they've done is tied the game up. See, Jesus has a whole lifetime full of righteousness. He's gained a big lead. And so all they've done by this death is tied the game up. How many people know that when the clock strikes zero and the game is tied, we got to go to overtime, y'all. So on the first day of overtime, it seems like death is in for a sure victory. On the second day of overtime, it seems like Team Darkness is about to get this dub. But on that third day of overtime, Jesus comes out of the grave. Jesus comes out of the grave and he sees his first defender. It's called sin. And he doesn't give sin an ankle breaking crossover. He gives sin a shackle breaking crossover. Saying that for anybody who puts their confidence in him, there is no more shackles of sin on them. It's been fully broken. The next defender he sees is death. And he gives death the meanest in and out move you will ever see. He says to death, I was in and now I'm out. And now he goes and the last defender that he sees, hear me out, the last defender that he sees is Satan. And he says, he rises up out of the grave like no LeBron James poster you've ever seen before. And Satan with his two inch vertical thinks that he's gonna hold him in the grave. Well, Genesis did say he would grab his heel, right? So he grabs only onto his heel, but like Vince Carter in 2000, he literally clears right over him, yams on Satan's head, all to say that I, I get the last word. If you're glad God has the last word in your mouth. I wish I had about 15 people that's excited that people have talked about you, that have cited that people have frustrated you, excited about the fact that all hell has broken loose in your life. But I'm glad that hell doesn't have the last word. Your cousin doesn't have the last word. Your best friend doesn't have the last word. But when God has the last word, In your life, when God has the last word, even if someone speaks after him, it's powerless because his word is the only word that has potency that nullifies all of the other voices that comes behind his voice. So our prayer for you and God's heart for you is that his voice through the gospel would be the most potent and powerful word in your life, every head bow and every eye closed. Maybe you're here tonight.